3: and definitely check out those shows as well. Go to ZibbyOwens.com. Latoya Watkins is the author of Parish, a novel. Latoya Watkins' writing has appeared in A Public Space, The Sun, McSweeney's Kenyon Review, the Pushcart Prize Anthology, and elsewhere. She has received grants, scholarships, and fellowships from the Breadloaf Writers' Conference, McDowell, Yaddo, Hedgebrook, and A Public Space. She was one of their 2018 Emerging Writers' Fellows. She holds a PhD from the University of Texas at Dallas, Parish is her debut novel and we had the best discussion about her whole journey to writing it and I am now just such a huge fan. Welcome Latoya. Thank you so much for coming on. Moms don't have time to read books to discuss Parish, a novel. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. I really
4: appreciate
3: it. Oh, it's wonderful. Can you please tell listeners what your book is about?
4: In simple terms, the book is about family with problems that they are trying to push through because as difficult as it seems, they really do love each other and they are trying to learn how to do that in healthy ways. Okay. You got to go deeper than that.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. The the letter you wrote in the beginning, by the way, with your love of the books that you read growing up, I just wrote a memoir called Bookends and I literally was saying like all the same things. Like, this is what I did. I read all of these books and obviously our experiences were different, but uh, we gravitated to all the same stuff, all the same books on the shelves and things that were available. And anyway, talk about your reading and how that became this book eventually. That's
4: awesome. That's awesome. (laughs) My reading, I I grew up in a place, well, for the first like decade of my life, we didn't have, I grew up in a neighborhood in West Texas where the book is set, where there were no libraries or bookstores, but my mom was a reader. And she was, as, as you know, from the letter, she was also a factory worker. So She, we didn't have like a home library or anything like that, but she would have these mass market paperbacks. Sometimes they would be from the library or she would buy them and they weren't for me. I didn't think that they were for me at all. Not Daniel Stills or Jackie Collins or Stephen King, but I would read them. I'm so sorry for that. I would read them after I knew that she was done and I didn't know that she knew that I was reading these books. So all of her favorite books became my favorite books. And there were no books. Like, I think the first book that I found there that I could really relate to was The Prince of Tide. Not relate to, but that I saw this like messy family with all these problems. And it wasn't just some beach read, was The Prince of Tide. There was so much emotion there. The Prince of Tide, there was so much emotion there. And then later on, Alice Walker's The Color Purple, I saw that there, and or I, I read that through my mother. And she actually ended up finding me reading that one. And, you know, that's when I found out that she knew I was reading the books. And we started kind of reading them together, or she would bring them to me when she was done reading them. And that's how I became a reader. And I also had siblings, but none of them were sneaking the books, stealing the books or reading. So I guess I was the only reader in the bunch. So there were a lot of things that we would do around books. If there was something in a book that, a a meal that I had never heard of, mom would try to recreate it so that I could have what was in the book to give me some sort of culture. After we moved away from West Texas, We had libraries in our neighborhoods. We had book fairs at school. So our reading together relationship kind of changed, but I did come into it in a very sneaky way that like I thought was wrong for a really long time until, you know, she showed me it wasn't. (laughs) I
3: would love for my kids to steal my books. (laughs) I'm like, like, please read this catalog. Just do it. Something. (laughs) Yeah. You never know. Maybe one day.
4: (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know how the very, it was that the very sad stories are what stuck out to me, but they were. I'm not sure if it was because of the way the characters were drawn in those stories or that I like to be moved by tears, but those were the ones that when I first decided to write something, I was like, I'm going to write something that makes me cry. I want to make myself cry. So I think that's how I came to write a book, like come up with characters like Helen Jean and Jan, a book like Parish, because when I was writing it, it made me cry.
3: Oh, <laughs> well, that is also the effect on the reader. So there you go. <laughs> but I thought it was so funny because I feel like particularly back in whatever, the 80s or the 90s, whenever these books originally came out, they always had family trees, you know? And, when I, and I was like, Thinking like they, there were all these like epic family stories, and then I opened tears, and I was like, "Oh yeah, well here it is. This is like this is I see why where this is coming from." And I also loved Pat Conroy, and I remember reading Beach Music and like just getting so into it. And they were long and dense, and then many of the books. Then I feel like more so now, but maybe that's just my misguided perception. Were these just like sprawling family sagas with generations, and yet they felt so contemporary because they ended up like right where you were you know so yeah. anyway i don't know that's my my trip down memory lane here memory lane. <laughs> oh my goodness so you start the book talking about Helen Jean and going mm-hmm. back in time into the 1950s and going through something that is very topical now with all of the talk about abortion and the rules and craziness that's going on well, I shouldn't put my own opinions it's abortion is in the news these days and it's a topic in your first chapter why don't you talk about that
4: first of all I didn't know that it was going to be in the news in the way that it is but it has always been something very visible in in Texas when I was in high school I worked I had a job at in the daycare of a fitness facility and there was a there was like this little business center in front of like kind of wrapped around the the daycare and it was one of those it was in a very like by the southern methodist university in that area like this very elite area and there was a planned parenthood in that business center so when i would go to work there would be protesters out there all the time and that was really almost i went th- three times a week and it was very jarring to see these people with these signs, these visuals, these photos, kind of almost attacking the people who were walking into the clinics, the clinic for whatever reason. And when I was doing research, that was one of the things that I looked for when I went back to West Texas, because I know that it it is like there's a conservative population there. And I didn't see a whole lot of it. But one of the things that I also paid attention to is I was looking at the populations of people like black and white. And when I did kind of stop by some of those clinics, I didn't see a lot of black people. So it brought into the question like where they were. I know they were, you know, having babies or getting pregnant. Um, Why weren't they at the clinics? And when I started asking those questions, a lot of the responses rolled back to the 1950s, the 1960s, even the 1970s. And they talked about the back alley abortions. So I asked a lot of questions about what those looked like. And there were so there were so many types and tools that people used. But the one that stood out to me the most that seemed the most dangerous, but also seemed like the go to because it was easier to get to was the turpentine abortion. And I even asked about that particular procedure. Like, I went to my mother and asked about that procedure. And she, you know, she was like, yeah, I know people who did that. I know people who used hangers. I know people who used wrenches. So, we kind of got into a conversation about the dangers of that and how common it was and how common it is even after in the black community, even after Roe v. Wade.
3: Wow. Well, I'm hoping it doesn't make a huge comeback. I mean, the health implications of these methods and the way you describe them and even how the time it works and the time it doesn't work and like going through that. And you're such a good writer. I mean, you're like in these scenes. It's like, you know, you want to like hold your stomach almost, (laughs) you know, it's like, but you're, you're immediately in it. Like the style is so propulsive. And anyway, it's, it's quite a launching off point for the story. Thank you. And then of course you go back and now we're in 2018 and we're back with Lydia. So tell me about this storyline.
4: Lydia is she's a significant character because i wanted to kind of explore what someone looked like when they were kind of taken out of this environment that's almost like a trap it's almost in it inescapable and she is away but ends up being away but is still very much connected and there's a lot of, I think, of unknown and shame. There are a lot of things that are like swirling around her that keep her from moving forward, these expectations. But um, I think with her, I wanted to explore why it's so important, or if it is important at all, to kind of go back to like where you're from or your past or your people and resolve or understand in some way and what that means for like independence or personal growth. And I think she's the character that is most kind of connected to the hope that I felt when reading or writing a book. Wow, I love it. So tell me how you even got into writing. Oh, I think writing has always been something that I was drawn to as a way to, I didn't come from a family or a community where if you were having problems, if you were grieving, if anything was going on, they would say, let's go take you to a therapist. It was just, it was kind of, you just pushed it down and moved forward. Well, I would write. And I actually started out, I think I wrote my first poem when I was seven. And I would write these things and my mother would read them and tell me that they were beautiful but even then I understood she was my mom like everything that I did had to be beautiful in some type of way if it was good. And I just did that until adulthood I believe just I wrote store I started writing stories but I remember I had a my education my college education wasn't traditional I already had a family I already had children when I tried to squeeze that in which was almost like, I don't, it doesn't make sense at all. (laughs) I was always late. I think everyone thought I was a slacker, but I had three children. So when I was an undergrad, I took one creative writing workshop. And this is, this is, this is how important mentors and instructors are to students. I had a, I wrote a poem. I wrote three poems in that course. And at the end of the course, the professor told me like that I had no future in writing. Like, that I should kind of give it up. And I did. did. And we had gone through craft elements and a lot of different things. And I don't think my work worked for that person. So I stepped away from it for a while, even as a way to process what I was going through. And then I had a cousin who told me I should write something. And I did. And I was like, you know what? This isn't bad. Like I read it myself. (laughs) It was the first time that I read my own work and I thought it wasn't bad. And by then I had graduated from undergrad and actually applied to law school. I was going to try and do that, even though I I just didn't know what to do next. And when I wrote that and read it, I said, you know what? I think I'm going to apply for grad school, I couldn't apply to an MFA. We didn't have one in DFW. I couldn't because I couldn't leave my children, but I did apply for at the same school that I'd gotten my undergrad at. And when I went in, I started asking students who's the worst or not the worst, but the best critical kind of reader in the Who taught creative writing? And they told me, and they told me to beware. They told me this person was a monster. And that's the class I enrolled in because I just wanted to get it over with. I wanted to know whether or not, like, I had what it took to actually write professionally. And if I didn't, I was going to try a different track. And when I went into that class, I knew that that person was going to tell me that I wasn't a writer. And in the end, after I submitted, my workshop story for that class it was a novella and and that he was that man was brutal um i'd seen people leave there crying mad cursing his name so i knew i i knew it was going to be bad but i was just going to you know grin and bear it and he did he tore he tore it apart but when he finished he told me how wonderful it was and how much potential it had and that i should revise it and it was actually a version of this story, this novel that we looked at. So that's how I began to study craft and understand what it is to be a writer and try to kind of do that.
1: I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Leah Murray.
4: And I'm Leah President.
2: And
3: this is Crunchyroll Presents the Anime Effect.
1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch.
2: Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week.
3: Wow. Wait, so what happened after that? So you
4: worked on the story together, then what? We worked, well, we created the story together and then I put it away and wrote a lot of other stories. I think while I was in that program, I made sure, like I went all the way through and got a PhD. So I was there for about seven years and every semester I took workshops, creative writing workshops, because I wanted to practice that as much as I possibly could. And I wrote a lot of stories that I loved, and it became like, I think my dissertation was a academic essay that centered a story collection. And my committee, when I was defending my dissertation was like, we love this collection, but this last story in it should be a novel. <laughs> and it was Parish, And it was the hardest story in that collection to write, but I, do think it was the one story that needed more or that wanted more so it was the one that i chose to expand on
3: wow what a story and then how long did you work on the how long did you work on it from becoming a story into a full novel
4: i think i worked on it it was probably in total about three and a half years. And that's because I was, again, a parent. (laughs) And kids just, like, you have to, you're on their schedule. As much as I think we try to create a schedule and try to situate them within it, they're the ones creating the schedule. And we just have to kind of get in where we fit in. So I wasn't able, and then I was teaching. So I wasn't able to write as much as i wanted to so i learned early on that i had to sometimes get away residencies or self-made residencies anything to kind of separate myself from mama home mode because that's a that's a thing like you're you're concerned you're you are only using half of of your senses when you are kind of in that mode so i would have to totally um, separate myself from the children in order to really get into character and not take on these personalities, the personalities of my characters and become those people for my children. So it took a while. <laughs> That's really not bad. I
3: mean, three and a half years is not bad for someone who's sitting at their desk all day, every day, trying to do it with nothing else going on. <laughs> like, you know, those stories I hear all the time too. So, um, Wow. So wait, how old are your kids now, by the way?
4: Oh, my kids are 20, 22. I'm sorry. I have a set of twins. So I'm always trying 22 and 24. So after I, it took longer to revise the novel than it did to make it a novel. I think in the beginning, there were like 22 narrators. Wow. <laughs> I, I had, uh, there were a lot of narrators. I'd been reading Ernest Gaines and William Faulkner, Morris Conde. So, so I had a lot of, um, narr- it was, it was very ambitious. So it took a lot longer to revise the novel than it did to make the story a novel. I have twins too. <laughs> really? How yeah. old are they? They're 15. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Are they? Uh, oh my goodness that that was the biggest prank that has ever been played on me twins um I wasn't (laughs) expecting that Uh, are yours boy girl or they're girls
3: they're They're girls girls. identical or fraternal identical identical oh my gosh
1: (laughs) Wow. Are yours? Or boy, girl, girl. Boy, girl. Oh, for journal. Wow. Yeah.
3: No, they oh, could wow. not be more different. I love the look of respect that crosses people's faces when they have one kid and they're like, but wait, you had two at the same time?
4: <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. That was the big... I, I was just like, wait, two yeah. at the same time. Yeah, that's incredible.
3: Yeah. But I do like to multitask, <laughs> so... Uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, then I had two more. So I have four kids. So I'm always like okay. off in different directions. But you know, it keeps oh it interesting.
4: Gosh. It does. It keeps especially if you want to keep them busy and active. It 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 does it, they they're interesting. It was fun, the multitasking, motherhood, being a writer, being a student, being a teacher all at the same time. And for a little, four, four four years of that, I was also homeschooling. So oh my God, stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was it was pretty busy times. I don't think I could I don't, I don't even know
3: how you got through that.
4: I can't I can't even explain it now that yeah. older, it's just like I don't know what just, that was you about. Do I don't think you need sleep. <laughs> yeah. Did you have a good support system though? I did. Um my family always we always lived in the same neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. So like when we were homeschooling. I would have a house of seven kids on one day because I taught certain subjects. My sisters would all take their day. even my parents took a day. So it it was we we worked together to do it. Well, that's good.
3: Oh my gosh. <laughs> Wait, let's go back to the timeline of the book. I'm like I'm like hanging on every word here of this story. So you revise, so you revise it, you cut out some of the narrators and
4: then tell me about selling it. Oh that was the oh I think I think that was the hardest thing and not not just the selling it no the selling it wasn't as hard as the revising it like it took me a really long time to get it to a place where there was some light some hope in in the book because it it was a mixture I think of things that became during my research, like and and I was a mother, like my deepest fear for fears for my own children, like for myself, kind of nightmares, and I had uh, trouble like finding places for light in the in, in the book. So it took me a really long time to get there. I, I'd say it took me three and a half years to turn this into a novel. It took another four to revise it, and then. I was also working on other things while I was doing it and unagented for some of that. So finding an agent wasn't as hard for me as I didn't have as many. Well, I didn't have the horror stories that some people have because I did a lot of residencies and conferences that were kind of juried applications. So a lot of times some of those things included sitting down with agents, agents reading your book, books so or your work. So, I went that route. Finding an agent wasn't the hard part. Getting the book ready again was the hardest part. But what happened was during the pandemic. I was I got a residency to Camargo Foundation in France. So, in March of 2020, February of 2020, I went to France and I was going to read the manuscript one last time, send it to my agent. And our plan was for her to send it out that April or something like that, March or April. Well, when I was in France, that's when everything kind of shut down. So we finished and my agent was like, well, I don't know. Things are kind of strange. Let's just kind of... (laughs) Let's <laughs> go see what things what they look like. And then she came back in. It was like June after I was home, and she said, "Let's go ahead and 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 try to give it a go." And we sent it out, and it was it was incredibly scary because it was cricket. Like no one knew what was going on, what publishing was going to look like, what the world was going to look like when when we came out of this if we came out of this. So we we didn't hear anything back and she was touching base with editors and we just didn't hear anything back. So I'm googling reading all these horror stories about people who wrote these books that just died like that didn't do anything and I was like that's what this book is like it's not going to sell. And then and I think we took it back out later that year. And we got responses. I think people were kind of getting their footing and understanding publishing in whatever way they were to understand it. And another thing had happened. The George Floyd murder had happened. And then so you had all of these kind of people in all of these different areas looking at the treatment of Black folks. So publishing was one of the areas where they were doing that. So there were the formations of all of these new imprints and my imprint didn't exist before then. So that's why they didn't respond to the first. um, (laughs) So, yeah, but it was amazing to get on the phone with them and talk to them about the book, when I had that first meeting, when you're meeting editors, like I knew it was like the way, the passion that the editor felt for the stories, both of my books was just incredible. And I knew that they were the ones that I would go with. That was the home for Paris. So it was, it was an incredible, it was, it was a pretty incredible experience because I didn't think it would happen after the first time we sent out. I'm glad it did. Oh my gosh.
3: Latoya, I'm so excited for you. I'm sorry that this time is up. I had like so many questions. I'm <laughs> sorry I was like dragging it. I, I want to hear more about the all of it, but I'm just so excited for you and your book. I can't wait for everything to come. I'm so excited you went with Tiny Reparations. I feel like they have the best books. <laughs> Seriously. I love them. <laughs> they're really great. Really awesome. Yeah. Um, And just congratulations on everything. And I'm just like going to follow along. So excited for you. So Thank you. Really inspiring story. Thank you
4: so much for reading Parish and being inspired by it and for having me here. My pleasure. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Thanks.
3: Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibiOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing, and thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music.
1: A new year is full of surprises. For a special offer that includes a four week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code program. Join us today during the Jeep celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE or Summit 4xE.